0: Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Industry Focus. Find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com fool and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Tuesday, February 19th, and we're talking about the Cracker Barrel Old Country Stores. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Motley Fool contributor Asit Sharma via Skype and construction workers downstairs by the their hammer sounds that you'll hear the rest of the show. Good to have you on the show, Asit.
1: Wonderful to be here. Thanks, Nick.
0: Uh, Great to have you on, Asit. Excited to be talking about Cracker Barrel. Really interesting business model, kind of half restaurant, half store. But first, off the top of the show, let's update our listeners a bit on our last show that we recorded together about casinos. We mentioned off the top of that show that uh, the major U.S. casinos, both Caesars and MGM, had had uh, activist stakes being built in them over the past several months. We've had some news come out regarding that. Uh, Carl Icahn uh, is reportedly pushing for Caesars to sell its business, and he's been asked by several other investors in in the casino to really push for a sale of Caesars. What are your thoughts about uh, about Carl Icahn's approach and, and the idea of a sale of Caesars and its assets?
1: I think this is classic Carl Icahn. We were trying to guess last time we talked about this. we're leaning towards aggressive action because uh, typically Carl Icahn has his, his end game already in mind. Um, I think the stake is significant. He's got a 10.3% stake, I believe. In- and those are more than just entry stakes, the, the 1% to 2% that activist investors usually begin with to start agitating and asking for some kind of change. That's a a stake that's verging on control levels. Once you get into this 10 to 20% region, it means you're pretty serious. And so in um, having this very large stake, influential stake uh, with the history of um, his other takeovers um, and, and activist actions, I think that one reason we saw this stock pop when this news came out last week is that people understand he will Work aggressively to make this happen, and management will have to scramble. The unfortunate thing about emerging from bankruptcy as Caesars did is that it usually takes three to five years to establish a pattern that investors are very, very uh, comfortable with. And while a stock may receive an initial boost, there's a sort of latency period in which management is proving itself in the new business model, the new paradigm. And that's a prime time for someone like Carl Icahn to come in and say, hey, this is still not performing up to par. Let's get this sold to bigger hands in the industry, and that's exactly what he's doing. What are your thoughts, Nick?
0: Yeah, I find it I find it really interesting. You know, I'm a Caesar shareholder myself. It's been a rough, uh, you know, couple years holding the shares. Uh, you know, I bought it kind of right when it came out of bankruptcy, saw the opportunity uh, from sports betting and its regional casinos, and thought you know there had to be a way to leverage. That value, well, the share price has not reflected that this year. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of value Carl Icahn might be able to wring out of the business. And, you know, as kind of a younger investor in my 20s, this will be my first time uh, kind of crossing swords with Carl Icahn. So it'll be fun to watch that uh, from the sidelines. Hopefully, it uh, can generate a nice gain. We'll see. But, uh, Asit, now let's move on and talk about our main topic for the show, which is Cracker Barrel Old Country Stores. and. It's a really interesting business by the way ticker CBRL It's a really interesting business to me because it's really just so unique it's, it's, uh it sells southern style food which there's not that many national restaurants that sell that but and it has a very very aggressive theme the classic old country store that you might see in you know uh, in Mayberry out of Andy Griffith or something like that and each one of them has an associated Gift shop with it, where you can go in and buy uh, little knickknacks, and they target travelers. Over eighty percent of their stores are located along interstate highways, and they advertise primarily through billboards. So, so when I describe to you, Asset, you know that business model for Cracker Barrel from a ten thousand foot view, uh, you know this really niche food genre targeting a niche uh, part of the market. What do you think about Cracker Barrel's business model?
1: Well, I think it's unique. Maybe it has a precursor in the South in a place called Stucky's. I don't know if you have ever seen uh, those old locations, but when I was a kid traveling along the interstates with my family, uh, that was maybe the model uh, of these locations located off the interstate that were a chain offering uh, food and, and convenience, other items, and also a gift shop. But beyond that, I've, I haven't seen this model implemented. I do think it's a very strong model, um, I, I've been told that it's, it's hard to discern that I'm from the South, but I grew up here in a small town east of Raleigh, not far from Interstate 95, which runs north-south, as everyone knows, um, all the way from the, the top of the country down to Florida. And I'm used to this rhythm of traveling down uh, for vacations and seeing signs, billboards along the highway. Um, I think that the model itself makes so much sense uh, for two reasons. One is the real estate Uh, located along the interstate, uh, is clever, the situation uh, or the location of of being just off of major cities, but on the interstate. That enables a company to ensure that it's going to have traffic flows for long periods of time. Now, in my lifetime, I've seen traffic trends shift from exit to exit along the interstate, so it's not a slam dunk. But when you think about the way in urban uh, areas Neighborhoods shift and demographics shift even within five or 10 years if it's a fast-growing city. The interstate comparatively is much more stable. So that's a great part of this model. The other thing that's interesting to me is I think it really makes for a recurring business because uh, when you have your local chain that you love to eat at or a local non-chain restaurant in, in your own town, familiarity can breed contempt. But this rhythm of traveling down, as I said, on a vacation or maybe for business, um, if you're encountering these signs only a few times a year, uh, it can be something novel, especially with the gift shop, which we're going to talk a lot about today. When you add this element uh, of a gift shop beside the restaurant uh, with novelties and Cracker Barrel uh, frequently rotates um merchandise and add seasonal items. I think that's another draw. Now, some of you listeners, younger listeners, may think, well, that's, that sounds like a sort of kitschy place to me. And who would want to stop in a restaurant like that? Who would want to then you know, go to this gift store and, and buy this merchandise? Well, it turns out there's a lot of people like that. They may be slightly aging as a demographic. But these have been solid numbers for a year, which makes this company a cash cow. Another reason why i'm I'm drawn to this business model, maybe not the most exciting investment, but an intriguing one nonetheless,
0: right, Asit. They're just in such a tight niche uh, that it's it's tough to see anyone coming after uh, after their area of the market. It's just uh, it's really a difficult model to replicate. You mentioned on the interstate highways, the interstates aren't going anywhere. We are, those those were built under the Eisenhower administration, and they're going to continue until. You know, a, a, a Out into forever. So, so these routes are really particularly valuable uh, places to locate a restaurant. Let's move to talking a little bit about the business and its strategy, where it's come to date. So to date, Cracker Barrel today owns 659 stores in 45 states. Uh, given the cuisine that it serves, Southern kind of a kind of, uh, home style fare, you would expect most of the stores to be in the South and Midwest, and they are. Roughly two thirds of its stores are located there. However, uh, they're beginning uh, to move. Uh, out into the West and they just opened their first stores in California and you had an interesting comparison to this uh, you know uh, a restaurant that maybe hasn't uh, expanded to its full geographical potential uh, that, that maybe is an interesting comp uh, for Cracker Barrel. Well, you want to talk a little bit about that, I'll about that also
1: absolutely. so investors who are listening who have shares in Dunkin Donuts also have watched the company uh, become what was first a regional chain. And now this isn't northern cuisine, but it might as well be. Donuts, coffee, uh, and for first extend uh, in a southerly direction then towards the Midwest. And there's this huge white space opportunity for Dunkin' Donuts on the West Coast. The question is, um, you know, will that concept take in California? And I think a similar question can be asked of this rather niche concept. We've seen Dunkin' uh, change its name from Dunkin' Donuts to Dunkin', streamline its stores uh, bring in a re- really new and, and renovated model of stores uh, to be this what they call on the go beverage led company. I'm not saying that there's some causality here, but uh, looking at how people uh, approach fast food on the, the the West Coast and what their preferences are, you can see that some of this shift is is changing how they present themselves to appeal to that greater West Coast audience. And I wonder too. As um, Cracker Barrel expands, what kinds of um, obstacles may it run into in terms of consumer preferences and how might it change the look of its doors at all, which is a big draw to its fans. So I'm sort of fascinated by this comparison and we'll we'll have to see as we go forward um, how this westward expansion works for Cracker Barrel.
0: Yes, it's an interesting case where what makes it unique also maybe caps the upside of the investment over the long term, given that uh, its core demographic is limited, limited geographically. Um, but let's talk about the, the the how the business makes money. About eighty percent of its revenue comes from the restaurant portion of the business, while twenty percent comes from the gift shop. I mentioned that they primarily target travelers; 80, over eighty percent of their stores being located along highways. Um, and most of their advertising being outdoor advertising. Hey, billboards on the side of the highway, come visit Cracker Barrel. Um, as a result of of them primarily targeting travelers, the business can be correlated with rates of highway travel and the effect of gas prices on people's tendencies to travel on the highways, Asset. What have we seen in the past from this business when it relates to its correlation with gas prices and the amount of travel that, you know, people choose to do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You couldn't call Cracker Barrel a cyclical business, but it is Affected by cyclical factors in the economy, so when economic growth slows and consumer discretionary spending crimps back a bit, then that tends to hit Cracker Barrel's results. And you'll hear management discuss it from time to time. They talk a lot about consumer discretionary income. Uh, I believe Sandra Cochran, the CEO, is very attuned to uh, how the economy is doing in terms of GDP growth and what effect that might have. Um, e-commerce is going to go on and on, but this company's business is primarily that of leisure travelers. And we should mention recurring visits uh, from people who are located near Cracker Barrel. So, not all of their business is this sort of drive-by on the interstate. They do have uh, a smaller group of customers. Um, and as you mentioned, I believe, uh, maybe, I'm not sure if, if we've come across a statistic yet, but maybe about four-fifths of their business uh, being this highway travel, then uh, you have Pretty sizable group of people who, you know, are, are drawn to the store in that fashion.
0: Right, and you're always going to have that Sunday after church crowd. It really, it really uh, caters to that that demographic um, as well. Another important important factor when it comes to folks traveling uh, is the retail strategy. Really depends on folks getting into the store. You want to get folks into the store to eat your food, and then you want to convert them in, into paying customers. And uh, they they really operate across several verticals. I think apparel is their largest demographic, but their most interesting uh, uh, part of their retail strategy is their music program. Uh, they they uh, have some exclusive music uh, sold through CDs. Uh, typically, as you would expect from the fair of the of the the food, that it's kind of Christian and country style. Uh, um, music, but it, what was really fascinating to me is, you go on their website, and there are four tabs on the Cracker Barrel website. There's menu, there's shop, there's catering, and music. So, they really view this a, 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 as a, something that attracts folks folks into the store and, and attracts loyalty. What thoughts, if any, do you have on Cracker Barrel's music program, and ha- how much of an asset it may or may not be uh, to the business?
1: I think it's uh, you know it's a good asset. I think that whenever you can make a connection with your customer beyond your core offering, Uh, some type of emotional connection or artistic in this case. I think that's strong for recurring business and opening up new channels of revenue. I want to point out, similar to the music, one thing that uh, Cracker Barrel has done uh, is to get their um, merchandise into retail stores. Mostly, you'll see these food items in grocery stores, which is a more recent development. Uh, We're going to talk about an activist shareholder later in the show, and I think that's a result of this activist shareholder pushing the company to expand channels. But um, I think Cracker Barrel has been very methodical in the way it's looked at expanding into other ch- um, channels. And if if I can use a metaphor, if, if, if they have four tabs on the website, you don't see a gazillion tabs. So Cracker Barrel isn't trying to be everything to everyone. It's trying to have this one uh, niche. And I think that the music um, uh, draw is a good one for their demographic. Now, Maybe that says to you an older demographic, um, you know, primarily a, a white demographic, country music. Um but you know, what we should say about Cracker Barrel is, is they have been working really hard to expand their customer base. They have uh, bought advertising on Hispanic channels because there's a growing uh, Hispanic population in the South. They've reached out to millennials, which we'll talk about later in the show. So even though the this music niche seems geared towards a very specific, uh, type of customer. There's no reason that they can't uh, add some Hispanic programming music to that in the future, and maybe some stuff that appeals to a, a younger crowd as well. And I'll be I'll be watching that tab, uh, you know, in the coming years to see how that changes.
0: Yeah, really fascinating offering from you know what ostensibly is a restaurant uh, business, but yeah, the, the, on the retail side, really very profitable. I think over four hundred dollars per square foot in the retail side of the business. So really profitable part of the business, and and it really drives. Uh, the cash cow aspect of Cracker Barrel, which is kind of what you mentioned off the top, and they've really put an emphasis on their dividend over the past several years. Last year, they declared a three dollar and seventy five cent special dividend. The, uh, the business yields about almost two, uh, almost three percent, two point nine four percent today. So, really, an interesting dividend uh, opportunity from Cracker Barrel, particularly if you think the expansion opportunities maybe are limited and they, they just keep squeezing the juice out of what their their current assets are. What thoughts do you have about Cracker Barrel's dividend and what opportunity it might provide, Asset?
1: It's a reflection on how the company allocates its capital. Uh, again, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, because we've got a great conversation in the second part of the show coming up about how it's, it's used its capital. But the special dividends plus the regular dividends, which are rising every year, I was just doing some thumbnail calculations. They'll they'll return to shareholders 5 to 6% a year, effective yield, uh, if they keep issuing these dividends. But in the past, the company uh, has really poured its excess capital, not towards shareholders' pockets, but to expansion, um, and not always to good effect. In past years, the company expanded without much of a game plan, didn't focus on unit profitability, just looked at that sort of aggregate punch that every new store gives you, you know, towards your top line. So, Uh, I think this reflects a more mature focus in some ways that uh, when you have a cash cow business, you have to show shareholders a little bit of the money. Uh, Now, if you can optimize the business in such a way that you're also expanding and getting a high return on invested capital from stores, uh, new units, etc., that's even better, but at base, shareholders expect to see some. When they see a mature business, um, this business has been around for a few decades. When they see a mature business that uh, is yielding a lot of excess cash flow, they want theirs. And I, I think the company, uh, in recent, more recent years, they've started their special dividend. I believe in 2015, and have increased it every year. So I think in the last five years or so, they, they've shown more of an appreciation for their own shareholders.
0: Yeah, definitely an interesting opportunity uh, to come uh, from Cracker Barrel. Uh, in the back half of the show, we'll talk about maybe some red flags and risks for the business. But first, a message from our sponsor. Making that perfect hire can help set your team up for success in the new year. But where do you find that person? That's why when it comes to posting your job, go where you have access to an engaged community that people visit every day. That's LinkedIn. Most LinkedIn members aren't checking job boards regularly, but nine out of ten LinkedIn members are open to and interested in new opportunities like yours. With most of the U.S. workforce on LinkedIn, posting on LinkedIn is the best way to get your job opportunity in front of more of the right people. It's no wonder a new hire is made every eight seconds using LinkedIn. Find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com. And get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, Asit, so let's talk about uh, some So maybe Red flags. I don't know about red flags, but people things to keep in mind uh, for Cracker Barrel. Uh, the, the first thing to to watch for Cracker Barrel is their same same store sales, and and the most important. Uh, and what what's the red flag for me is that traffic has been declining over time. You've seen this at restaurants in general, um, but for Cracker Barrel, it's particularly important because as we mentioned, the retail strategy of the business depends on bringing folks into the restaurant to eat and then selling them. Uh, 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 retail, uh, merchandise, uh, in connection with that visit. So, um, last year, uh, last year, uh, traffic declined 1.9%, um, and resulted in, uh, retail sales, uh, being essentially flat for the year. However, in the most recent quarter, we have seen seen things, uh, tick up a little bit with restaurant sales up 1.4% in the most recent quarter. Uh, Driven by an average check increase of three percent, but one percent of that was actually folks buying more, uh, more off the menu uh, from from folks uh, from an increase in menu prices resulting from new menu items, not just increasing the price of items uh, left on the menu. And they also had really powerful uh, retail sales uh, driven by strong uh, uh, excuse me, strong performance in apparel and accessories and toys, which I thought was particularly interesting given the Toys R Us bankruptcy over the past year. Um, when you look at you know these same store sales uh, figures, asset, and just the way uh, they have performed. You know in the recent past for Cracker Barrel, what what st- stands out to you uh, from those uh, those numbers?
1: Well, what stands out to me is management's analysis of um, the traffic decrease. Now, you had said, uh, Nick, that the traffic trends have been decreasing over time, <laughs> and that's certainly the case. But when you listen to management's calls last year, and actually. I usually read transcripts. Shortcut, listeners, uh, we we often talk about management calls. You can find transcripts um, online to search for the transcript of a earnings call for a company and skim over it. It is such a great thing to do if you own shares of any company. Sorry for that little bit of diversion there. But important point. I was skimming these and, and reading these transcripts from quarters two through four of last year. And what took me by surprise was that management itself seemed a little bit surprised at why traffic had declined. And, and these are longer term, uh, some of these are longer term factors for the company uh, that you know management should be dealing with. I'm going to read you um, a couple uh, or a few of, of the uh, traffic factors that management cited. So, first was underperformance of the Campfire menu. This was a menu that was introduced about three years ago, um, which was very popular. Um, Cracker Barrel introduced new items that, in its own words, didn't resonate with customers. So, possibly we're seeing some customer fatigue there. Uh, Cracker Barrel also changed its media strategy in the middle of last year with the idea of running fewer weeks of uh, promotion and marketing, but with a higher intensity. And that did not pan out. So they've gone back to their more regular cadence. Higher gas prices, which uh, hit customers' discretionary income and reduced miles traveled in core Cracker Barrel states was also cited. And this is what I was talking about earlier, that gas prices... Can have a pretty quick effect on the company's financial in any given quarter. Again, it's not a cyclical business, but you always have to be ready to you know to hear this from management. Well, you know, gas prices shot up, so traffic decreased, and this was again surprising decline in guest experience metrics. Uh, this is an execution item when whenever you see customer satisfaction results declining uh, or customers not interested in the menu. That's a lack of a little bit of lack of execution on management's part. And I think management very much realized that and good on them to sort of dig into it, talk about it on the call, and they offered some solutions. Um, one of uh, I should actually say one last factor was lack of emphasis on value offerings and craveable offerings. So again, this idea of the menu not being um, replenished with, with stuff that appealed to, to customers. So these are the solutions that management offered. They are, have now um, a new innovation called bone-in fried chicken, uh, which is part of their crave-able, craveable menu approach. They also have shifted back to um, a value offering uh, cadence. So we see this in the quick service restaurant industry quite a bit, where when results suffer, companies will come with limited time offerings, two for five. You've seen that on all the major uh, quick service restaurants. So... Cracker Barrel doesn't quite have this type of offering, but it will give uh, you know special. Now it has a messaging for like a daily special, which it's doing, and it's also trying to leverage its off-premises business, which is an interesting trend. Again, this is something we'll talk about in just a bit. But it's trying to increase its catering business and add items to the menu that are conducive to having people order. And um, they're actually adding trucks in major markets to facilitate this uh, off-premises business.
0: yeah, Interesting to see uh, the issues with the menu. I think when you look at a business that's been around as long as Cracker Barrel, uh, to, to, to think that the, maybe the menu is, is not resonating as much as it has in the past, maybe is a source of concern. Definitely something to watch for the business, particularly the traffic numbers that I mentioned, the, the connection of that to the retail side of the business. Another part of the business that's emerging, and, and maybe has some question marks uh, for investors uh, when you take a look at it, is this Holler & Dash uh, uh, fast-casual concept that Cracker Barrel has begun rolling out. I think they have seven stores uh, across the country today. Um, this is a, a fast-casual concept that sells biscuits and biscuit-type sandwiches. Interestingly, it only addresses uh, the breakfast and lunch day parts of the day, when typically uh, the dinner day part uh, is the most profitable part of the uh, the most profitable day part. Uh, I've actually been to one of these. They opened one in my college town, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, right down from the football stadium a couple years ago. Uh, it was pretty good for for someone who who is was born and bred in the south, i didn't I didn't think it was the the best biscuit I've ever had, but it was it was an interesting concept and it is crowded much of the time. from what you've looked at relating to holler and dash, uh, what red flags or what st- stands out to you with uh, in connection to this concept that Cracker Barrel is experimenting with?
1: First, let's talk about the green flags. The The good um, part of this equation is, I mentioned earlier the company's trying to reach out to the younger demographic, millennials, uh, Gen X, Gen Y, and this is the embodiment of that strategy. So, I think that it's necessary to perhaps have either within the Cracker Barrel stores or a spin-off concept like this, something that will entice the younger consumer. Um, it's problematic, though, if you look at the major urban cities. Uh, so, these are located in Atlanta, Charlotte, of course, Birmingham, um, major southern cities. The the little problem is, uh, and, and we should describe what is actually on the menu. So, Many of the entree like dishes are actually biscuit preparations so you'll have a biscuit served with uh, a protein and a side that's served up as an entree and Nick what what did that run you maybe uh, eight nine bucks for a biscuit
0: yeah I, w- I would say that you know between like eight and twelve dollars I you know I've only been once so I can't I can't you know don't quote me on that but that that sounds accurate yeah
1: okay so yeah and listeners uh, tweeted us if if you've been to one or if you happen to be from the south I'm gonna talk a little bit here indulge me, uh, those who aren't from the South, about biscuit culture. Uh, I'm here in the middle of it in North Carolina, obviously home of Bojangles. And as you go further South to Nick's territory, I think it only becomes more intense. But as uh, the, and forgive me, as the hipsters have uh, delved into food culture, and as millennials have become interested in uh, cuisine, in major southern cities, and I live in Raleigh, so that's a, a great example, there is quite a bit of new takes on classical southern fare in any number of great restaurants. And it's difficult if you live in one of these cities with so much great biscuit cuisine. And, and to back me up, I just noticed last night in my grocery store that we have a magazine called Our State, which is a sort of a gloss of, of major stuff going on in North Carolina, uh, really fun magazine. It's a whole issue devoted to um, restaurants that are sort of just like uh, Holler and Dash. So these are restaurants which have really outre takes on biscuits. It's a hard concept to sort of parachute in um, and do that and not that. It's it's parachuting. Obviously, Cracker Barrel is from this area, and I think they worked with uh, two local restaurateurs to begin the concept. So I shouldn't call it parachuting, but to originate this concept here, it's tough. This is um, a place where there are so many interpret great interpretations on biscuits. And I I understand why they did it because uh, the biscuit is part of a core a menu th- uh, in Cracker Barrel. And in, in fact, one of the uh, things that management mentioned. Uh, that it would do to increase um, traffic, again, is, is work on its biscuits in C- Cracker Barrel locations. I understand it, but I think the red flag here is there's fierce competition in this area. And uh, Nick, I, th- I think you mentioned the company has sort of slowed its pace from an initial um, the few that it opened. They're opening at a very slow rate now, and I think that maybe they're taking some uh, learnings from the first few restaurants and tweaking the concept.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how how it plays out. Uh, definitely a growth opportunity for a business that appears to be maturing, uh, but we'll have to see how things play out. Okay, Asa, and then one other uh, kind of red flag that stands out, maybe for investors or, or yellow flag, maybe is the uh, presence of an activist stake in this business. So Baglari Holdings uh, is run by Sardar Baglari. And He has held a very large stake in Cracker Barrel over a period of time, up to nearly 20% for a long period, although he has been selling it down over the past. He's been very open about criticizing management's capital allocation strategy, and he has been behind some of the shareholder-rewarding aspects of Cracker Barrel's dividend policy over the past few years. What should investors know about this activist stake in Cracker Barrel and what it means for the investment?
1: So, Biglari Holdings, uh, now uh, I believe uh, based on uh, an article you sent me, their holdings are down to about 15% from a close to 20% stake. This 20% stake has been a sore point for management for many years because they've always felt that Sardar Biglari, Biglari Holdings, um, are going to take a greater stake. And so they adopted this this poison pill to combat that. But investors should know that actually, uh, by remaining sort of under uh, you know a, a complete control Biglari Holdings has had a positive impact on the stock they've helped improve operating margin they've helped improve cash flow which has rewarded uh, shareholders they really agitated against this expansion uh, without looking at profitability first some other things they've done they've actually um, they forced management to break out uh, the retail sales which uh, management had never done so there's several actions that the company uh, has taken that um, Biglari Holdings has agitated for. An interesting thing that you pointed out to me, Nick, is that they've never given uh, credit to to the activist shareholder. The activist shareholder will uh, point out that X, Y, or Z needs to be done in a very loud voice. And the pattern is that management will next quarter start implementing those changes as if they came up with it themselves, which, you know, I guess if if... This share price is rising. Biglari Holdings doesn't need the credit, but I find that very interesting. The the one thing that I really quickly wanted to, to talk about in terms of this poison pill, this dispute between management and, and Biglari Holdings. Biglari Holdings has always maintained that it doesn't really want to have more than a 20% stake, and it, for, for its uh, you know for its side, it's it's said that look. If we take more than a 20% stake, that's going to trigger a debt covenant, which will then make us have to immediately pay $164 million to our lender. So we're not going to go above 20%. One other thing that Biglari has always maintained is that there is an act on the, the books in Tennessee called the Tennessee Control Share Acquisition Act, which prohibits a shareholder who owns 20% 20% or greater stake in a company from voting more than 20% of their share. So even if they were to acquire 30%, 40 50%, they wouldn't have the voting control past 20%. And so they've often argued that, hey, this whole poison pill issue is moot. We can't because of our debt covenants in any way, the law prohibits it. Management's never really responded to that um, I will say, you know, going forward for shareholders, you sort of want Biglari to keep that 15% stake. They've been good for Cracker Barrel. They've kept management honest. Um, they've been responsible for a lot of good change. So, your drivers would be for Biglari to stay invested and stay active with this company.
0: Yeah, I would say he he would be much more uh, identified, at least from a shareholder's perspective, as a white knight than a corporate raider in this situation. It really has been very rewarding for shareholders over time. If he's beginning to sell down his stake, uh, may, I don't know if there's any read-through to that for investors as to what the potential upside might be for the investment over the long term. Definitely something to continue watching, both for his advocacy and just you know maybe as a signal to, to what opportunities there are for the business. Last thing I wanted to address, and we've touched on this a few times, is how The rise of off-premise sale, this food delivery concept, how that might affect Cracker Barrel. Obviously, we mentioned that Cracker Barrel's retail strategy depends on getting folks into the restaurant to eat at the restaurant and then converting them into retail customers. Of course, if folks uh, use delivery, they don't ever end up in your restaurant, and they can never be converted. Uh, Cracker Barrel is investing some in off-premise sales. Uh, You mentioned uh, uh, some food truck concepts they might be doing, as well as they're expanding their catering and takeout offerings. What are your thoughts on the rise of off-premise sales and what that means for Cracker Barrel as an investment going forward?
1: It's obviously an important trend for the company to explore. We see so many companies. Chipotle is a great example of trying to expand off-premise sales, either through catering um, or have people come in and take food away. For Cracker Barrel, it's more catering. The only question that I've got, and I know you've got a great question, Nick, but the only question that I have is, given that so many of the locations are interstate locations, so they're not really smack in the middle of, of big urban areas, they tend to be around smaller metropolitan areas. How big is the opportunity to to do business catering? I think it's limited. Um, And sure, it may be a good uh, revenue stream to explore, but I, I have my doubts that it's this major source of income that management is sort of trying to communicate that it could be. I'm a little skeptical on that front.
0: Yeah, I, I think me bring, wrapping it all together, I, I think Cracker Barrel uh, exists in a niche that I think makes it very difficult for someone to come in and disrupt where they operate. However, both due to the nature of the business, in that you need folks to come into the restaurant to sell things, which is moving counter to more trends toward delivery, as well as uh, just the the, uh, the retail items that it sells. Its old country store theme, uh, the the southern food, is going to cap its ability to really grow and move nationwide. You know, I, I may be wrong there, but that, that that's my my belief. So I I think Cracker Barrel. Uh, Given the assets that it has and its positioning, is going to continue to make money over time, and is going to be a, probably a really attractive investment from a dividend perspective, just uh, you know spitting out cash over time. However, from a capital capital appreciation point of view, um, I don't know how excited I would be in buying this business, looking for it to double uh, over the coming years. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on that uh, that thesis asset?
1: I think that. Growth will rest more on menu innovation than almost anything else because it is this niche product. I agree with you. Uh, We'll see how this westward expansion works. Um, There may be some opportunity within the next five or 10 years for some unexpected returns, let's say if, if units accelerate faster than expected or the concept really takes out west. But if you are a dividend oriented investor, uh, and you want capital appreciation with, with some downside protection, this isn't a bad stock to look at. And that's where the beauty of this particular concept lies. Like you said, Nick, the interstates are going to be here long after you and I are gone. And uh, I believe you know, Southern uh, food will be popular within the South long after you and I are gone. So, there is something to be said for buying this model for what it gives to you. That, so far, 5 to 7% effective yield on the rising dividend and special dividend.
0: Yeah, definitely interesting investment opportunity, Asset. I'm heading down south tomorrow for Mobile, Alabama Mardi Gras, so maybe I'll get hold of some southern food while I'm down there. Thanks for coming on the show, Asset. Great to have you and uh looking forward to having you on again soon.
1: Absolutely. It was fun. Thanks so much, Nick.
0: You're welcome. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and the Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Dan Boyd for his work behind the glass. For us at Sharma, I'm Nick Seipel, thanks for listening and fool on.